All right, let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 25. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 4. We're going to go all the way through 25. It's a bit of a story, a lengthy a lengthier uh, little piece of history here, but it's a great account that teaches us a lot. Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 25. Anybody, any, you guys ever get nervous when you have, to, uh, you have to give like a larger bill to somebody at a store, sales clerk, and then they, they pull out the marker, do the marker thing on it? Like I have to look at it, and they look at me, and then they put the marker on it, and then they grab another marker, and, the marker. and I'm always, I start to get nervous, I'm thinking like, I, a guilty conscience, I just, I, I know, I don't think I have, I don't, don't mean to have any counterfeit money, but what if it is, and they're not going to believe me, they're going to call the cop, I'm going to lose my money, and, uh, but it's, it's, the thing is, it's, it's actually pretty easy to see if it's counterfeit, I feel like, right, if, I mean, there's a strip, I can see the strip, and I can buy those pens on Amazon, I feel like it's pretty easy to figure out if something is counterfeit or not, some things are easy to see the difference in, right, the way that they've gone in, I'm sure there are people that make good counterfeits, but it just seems to me like it, some things are pretty obvious, that those tests seem to be pretty foolproof, easy to spot the fake, other things not so much, sometimes it's hard to spot the fake, the thing that's not real. And this is certainly true with professions of faith. There's a lot of people that profess faith in Christ that don't actually have faith in Christ. And it's not necessarily that they're intentionally lying, trying to deceive people, though that certainly happens. Most of the time, I think people are just confused. There are counterfeit Christians, and then there are real Christians. There is true conversion and false conversion. And that's something that we're going to see in our passage today, the difference between a false conversion and a true conversion. But the principle that I want you to hold on to is important for us because I believe this principle is something that helps us to navigate this tense issue for us. Is everybody in our church a true convert or not? How do I know? How can I trust? Well, this principle helps. The principle is this. The church is called to make disciples. But only God can make converts. It's not our job, responsibility, or ability to make a convert. We can't make that happen. It is our responsibility to make disciples. So we're going to look at this passage. We're going to see that this guy Philip, right, uh, one of the 12, he, he goes up to Samaria to preach the gospel, to make disciples, and he encounters someone named Simon. Right, that's, that's the story. Simon has his own kind of testimony and backstory, and he's going to profess faith in Christ. We're going to see what happens in Peter's interaction with Simon once Peter gets up there. So first, we see that Philip goes to Samaria. Look, at me with, uh, look, look with me at verses 4 through 8. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits were crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was much joy in that city." All right, so Philip here. Philip's not introduced, right? Philip has been mentioned before. We read about him in the Gospels as well. But a bigger part of his story is told here. Who is Philip? 
Philip was one of the original 12, right? Chosen by Jesus. And when Jesus shows up in, uh, in John chapter one and says, hey, Philip, I want you to follow me. Philip doesn't just go. He goes, but he grabs somebody along the way and says, Nathan, you've got to come with me. It's the one. He's here. And listen to this in in John chapter 1, starting in verse 43, it says, The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He's like, Let's go. And Nathanael goes with. Philip believed early followed early he's been with he was with Jesus from the from the beginning and when we find out later on is that you know he Philip was married he had four daughters and in Acts chapter 21 verse 9 we see that he had four daughters who were unmarried they were all involved in ministry they were known as to, to, to prophesy that is to teach and to and to preach in their respective areas like they they were known for this that this guy Philip had a had a big heart. He, he loved people. We see this play itself out just by him going to Samaria, for example. But he was a godly man who had a godly influence wherever he went, even in his family. So Philip goes to Samaria, this big preacher with a big heart. What is up with Samaria? Well, Samaria is this region north of, of Israel, right? And uh, in the northern region of what was Israel. So this area, though, over time and through generations, became distinct from the nation of Israel. So Samaria really uh, eschewed like much of the Old Testament Bible. They, they just didn't hold on to it. They held on to the first five books, the books of Moses, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They held on to that. They, they left the rest. And so they became kind of a hybrid. They weren't really Jews, but they weren't really Gentiles. Uh, they had a kind of halfway Jewish faith, but not really. And so there became, there, there was this built a lot of tension between uh, Jews and, and Samaritans. They, they didn't get along. They didn't, they had different temples. They worshiped differently. And the Jews considered the Samaritans unclean, no interactions, got to stay away, keep back. But now we have these Jewish disciples, these apostles strategically aiming for Samaria. That's where they want to go. They, they've got to get there. Samaria is the first time that the gospel is leaving one people group and going to another. It's, it's all started in Jerusalem, right? It started with the Jews, and now they're saying, hey, listen, uh, we got to take this message, and we got to take it to Samaria. We got to take it to the people that we have always been at odds with, the people who rejected so much of the Old Testament that, that, that we love and trust. We're going to take the gospel. We're going to take Jesus there. This is... Uh, this is exciting, right? I mean, this, this is what I mean. Like, he had to have a big heart. He had to love people, even people that are not like him. And what's happening here is it's actually the fulfillment of what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, if you remember. You will receive the Holy Spirit, and you will, be my, you will receive power, right, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So now it's leaving the Jewish context, going into this, this unique context. Not, not Jew, not Gentile, somewhere in between the gospel is spreading, right? So this 
this is what we see, right? The, the, the persecution is fueling the preaching of the gospel, right? Those who were scattered were preaching the word. And what Philip did is he, he took the word of God, he took the gospel, and he took it up to Samaria. So what was his message and what was his ministry? We, we, we can see it here, right? He was preaching the Christ. That's what it says. He went about preaching the word. Philip, right, Philip specifically proclaimed to these Samaritans the Christ. In other words, he didn't come with some message about positive vibes, positive thinking, better yourself. He, he doesn't come with a, with a plan to renew the city or to, or to change the culture. That's not his message. His message isn't some sort of like prosperity gospel message where like, hey, listen, if you look to Jesus, your whole life is going to become really sweet and much better. You're, you know, things are going to run smoother for you. Uh, you're going to have wealth and you're going to get healthy. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. Nor is, he, nor is he selling some kind of poverty gospel thing where it's like, oh, if you really want to get close to God, you got to believe in Jesus. But you also, you know, you have to strip yourselves of all of the worldly comforts and charms. You know, you can't have any pleasures in this life if you want to get close to God. He does, he's not doing any of that nonsense that we hear today. He keeps it simple and clean. He preaches to them the Christ. He preaches Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, where he's like, listen, I didn't come to you with philosophy and smooth words and all that stuff. I didn't want to know anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what I committed myself to knowing. That's why I committed myself to teaching you. And that's not to say that Paul wasn't sharp. Paul was brilliant, highly educated, understood philosophy, culture, art, all that stuff. But in his preaching, his emphasis, his teaching, it was all about Christ and the gospel. So this is what he is saying, right? Uh, Philip is, is preaching the Christ, and there are miracles that are being performed, exorcisms, demons are being cast out. They recognize the power of, of Jesus in Philip, and the, and the people are being healed of their illnesses, of serious illnesses, sickness, diseases, and the people are rejoicing. Did you see that? People are happy. Right? It, it, it says that uh, there was much joy in that city through the effect of Philip. Now, they were probably rejoicing for a number of reasons. I'm sure some people were rejoicing because they could walk again for the first time in years, or they could walk for the first time in their life, or maybe they could hear, or maybe they could see, or maybe it was the demonic oppression that was taken away. So some people are rejoicing because things got better, but other people are rejoicing because the gospel is saving them. Other people are rejoicing because they have found the favor of God. So yes, the people in that city were happy, but this is where the guy Simon shows up. Simon shows up, and Simon is a different kind of character, different than of what you might expect to find in one of these stories. Begins in verse 9, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. This is Simon. People call him Simon the Magician, which is a terrible, terrible nickname. Simon the Magician sounds like the teenager that you hire to do magic at your little kid's birthday party. No offense, teenage magicians, 
but you're not David Blaine, right? So I'm just saying, like, Simon the Magician isn't like that, you know, it's like, I don't know. And then you go, oh, some people call him Simon the Sorcerer, which sounds even sillier to me. I don't like that. And then there's Simon Magus, right, which is the old school name, kind of like that. But Simon the Magician doesn't sound like a big deal, but make no mistake, he was a big deal in Samaria because he wasn't an illusionist. He wasn't tricking people. He was, in the most real sense, practicing magic, sorcery, witchcraft. And he had a following. He had a platform. People were amazed. They listened to him. They followed him. They, they talked about him. They, they lifted him up. Simon was a big deal because of witchcraft. I know for a lot of us, we think like witchcraft, like the only, the only frame of reference a lot of us have for witchcraft are, is like uh, witches or sorcery in fantasy literature and movies, right? We think like, oh, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter or whatever. And in those contexts and in those formats, like that's, that's fine. I, I'm actually a fan of, 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 Harry, of the Harry Potter novels. But what we're talking about here is something altogether different. We're, we're talking about idolatrous sorcery, witchcraft that is driven ultimately by the devil. And the scripture speaks a lot about this in Deuteronomy chapter 18, uh, verses 10 through 14. It says, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And it's not just Old Testament. It's not just some obscure Old Testament law. When you look at, uh, say, Galatians chapter 5, and you look at verse 19, Paul lists the works of the flesh. And it's kind of what you would expect it to be. Paul says, oh, here are the works of the flesh. These are obvious. Paul says, these are obvious. Sexual immorality, check. Impurity, check. Sensuality, idolatry, check, check. Sorcery. When was the last time you were concerned about sorcery? When was the last time you, you were like, hey, man, I don't know, whole sorcery thing, a lot of temptation out there for sorcery. Right, like it, it's, not, it, it's, it's just not as common of an issue for us, but it's right in the middle of this list. Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalness, dis, uh, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. Sorcery's right in the middle because it is a real problem, whether we're familiar with it or not. So Simon was that kind of a magician, that kind of a sorcerer, leading people astray with demonstrations of power that were ultimately satanic in origin. People were captivated. They paid attention to him because for a long time he amazed them with magic. But something's going on, right? As we've been reading, Philip shows up. And when Philip shows up, everybody's listening to him. And what's Philip doing? He's casting out demons. He's performing miracles. He's giving people their, their health back. And so now there's, there's a new guy in town. Think about it from Simon's perspective. I'm the man. I've got the power. I've got the platform. I've got all of it. And now new guy shows up talking about 
some guy from Nazareth, he shows up and he's, he's talking about this person rose from the dead and, uh, and he's, he's talking about Holy Spirit and, and, and now he's healing people and performing things that I haven't done. And attention is shifting. People are beginning to pay attention now to Philip. And so we pick up in verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing great signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. All right, so here we have an account of what looks like Simon's conversion. It says Simon believed. That's not a weird word. That's the same word that Luke uses to talk about anytime anybody believes. He says the same thing about Simon that he says about every convert. Simon believed. He starts following along. Uh, and, and, and he's amazed by the, the signs and the power and the wonders. Is Simon a real convert? Well, if, if the story ended here, I would go, yes. I mean, he's a new, he's a convert. He's a believer. He's a follower of Jesus. Now, let's celebrate. This is awesome. And this is always the case. When, when, listen, when somebody professes faith in Christ and they begin their journey, what do you do? Hopefully, you're not suspicious. That's not cool. When I became a Christian, I was afraid to tell people for two weeks because I didn't think anybody would believe that Joey, that's what they called me back then, that Joey was a born-again Christian. Because, like, there's no way. There's a, that's, he's, it's a thing. It's a phase. He's, he's, doing it, he's got some kind of ulterior motives. No, I didn't think anybody would believe me. And I couldn't hold it in anymore. I started telling people. And I was surprised. The Christians, like, believed me. Like, they, they, like they, they didn't doubt me. They didn't look at me sideways. Like, what are you up to? You rejoice when somebody professes faith in Christ. So at this point in the story, you think, like, okay, wow, that's pretty amazing. This guy Simon believed. His story isn't over here, though. His story picks up after there's this great demonstration of power. Remember, power is important in the story of Simon. In verses 14 through 17, we have what looks like, uh, like a little mini second Pentecost. Right? You remember Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell in Acts chapter 2? Jesus said, I want you guys to chill out, wait in the upper room where it's hot and smelly, wait, and then the Holy Spirit's going to descend. You guys are going to all be filled with the Spirit. You're going to be my witnesses. It's going to be awesome. So they wait, boom, Acts 2, filled, tongues, the whole thing. It is an amazing outpouring. It shows that God's Spirit is, is, is given to all people equally and abundantly. Everybody is filled with the Spirit. Everybody is indwelt with the Spirit. It's awesome. And then we read this in verses... 14 through 17. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and, and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Peter and John, this is a big deal, Peter. It says, they, it says like, oh, they went down to Samaria, but it's actually north. It's just because anytime you leave Jerusalem and go somewhere, you're going down. 
That's just how Jerusalem's on a hill, and it's, it's the city on a hill. It's Mount Zion. It's just how they always say it. If you're leaving Jerusalem, you're going down somewhere. So they go down up to Samaria. And they said, it's, it's Peter and John they show up. Like this, is, like, this is kind of a big deal. Like Peter is like the main guy. And the reason they're going down is because they're excited. Samaritans have received the gospel. They're believing in Jesus. They're excited, but they're also like, hey, they haven't received the Holy Spirit yet. How do they know? I don't know. It may be that there wasn't the same sign that was accompanied by uh, the, the Jewish uh, apostles and early believers that speaking in tongues. Maybe that was it. But they know. They know somehow. They did not receive the Holy Spirit yet. But why not? Isn't everybody receiving the Holy Spirit, right? The moment they're born again, right? They're, they're indwelt with the Spirit. They believe in Jesus. All that happens together. Why haven't they? So they, they're, they're going there to see, to support, to encourage, and to pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit. And they pray, they lay their hands on them, and they do. They receive the Spirit. What's Why? Most scholars argue that this is to give a clear demonstration that the gospel and the kingdom is not for a region, and it's not for a particular group of people. It's for the world. It's for everybody. The gospel, the kingdom, the Holy Spirit is for everyone. And so though the Jews had their Pentecost, it is as if, wow, there, we want there to be a demonstration of a, of, a, of a Pentecost for the Samaritans who were always considered the outcasts, the, 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 the backwards, the, 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 the theologically confused. And they were as if most of Israel wasn't as well, but they certainly were. They were out of step with orthodoxy. And so here we have God setting it up in such a way, withholding the Holy Spirit until a particular time. So like the Jews, they had to wait and then they received the Holy Spirit, all of them, in the same way the Jews did. Because in Christ, we're one. We're the same. There's no favorite group in the church we're all brothers and sisters. We're all sons and daughters of God equally. So, Holy Spirit descends. Power, right? Then we pick up in verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. This is when Simon shows his true colors. This is when you, oh, this is what Simon has been about. We couldn't know earlier. We couldn't see it, but now we do. Now, if you were there and you knew Simon, maybe you would have his number. Maybe you would have it all figured out. But as we're reading this really from a distance, we couldn't know this, but now we're starting to see. And Peter totally has his number. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. It's a disappointing story, right? I, I think it's, a, it's compelling, but it's sort of disappointing because you're like, oh man, I thought, I was all, I was all pumped, man. I thought Simon got saved. I thought Simon was a, was a convert, but now, I mean, it's pretty clear he wasn't converted. 
And if we couldn't properly interpret Simon's own words when he's like, hey man, let me buy this jam so that I can have power. If we couldn't rightly interpret it, it's okay. Peter interpreted it for us. Peter tells us us what's actually going on in Simon's heart, in his life. His true colors are shown. Like he has, he has revealed himself. You know, the, you know what true colors comes from, right? Not the Cindy Lauper song. The true colors. Like, um, like uh, in the 18th century, the pirates, right, would, would fly a, a flag, a color of a friendly uh, country or, or, or city. And that way they could get close to another ship and be like, oh, see, we're, look, we're with you. We're all, we're all good. We're all buds. And then when they, get, when they get close to them, when they could attack, they would drop their colors and they would raise the black right, their flag, and then they would attack. Their true colors would be shown, not the false colors or the false flag. And that's what's happening here. Peter got to see. See, Simon's motive was the same as before his conversion. He was about power and influence. He wanted power and influence. He wanted platform. He wanted to keep his thing going. And when he saw like attention being taken away from him and pointed over to this preacher, to this gospel minister, uh, to this, and, and there's this demonstration of power with the Holy Spirit, he wants it. He wants to get in on that. So he goes all in. And so, yeah, in some sense, he believes in Jesus, but it's not the saving kind of faith. It's not a real conversion. Peter says, like, listen, you're not a part of this. You have no part in this. You're not really a part of this. You're not right with God. That's what Peter says. So you're not a true convert. Peter makes this very clear. He says, you need to repent because you are living in the gall of bitterness, which is a great expression. The gall of bitterness. Gall is a kind of bitterness. So it's, you're living in the bitterness of bitterness. You know, like your heart of hearts is like the, the deepest part of your heart. The gall of bitterness is the bitterness of bitterness. It's the most bitter place. In other words, he's saying, listen, Simon, I have figured you out. I see what's going on. Like you are so jealous of attention being drawn away from you. You're jealous of the power that is being demonstrated in the church that you want that for yourself, that you have become embittered. And so you're going to do whatever it takes. You're going to pay for it if possible. But you live in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity, which just means you're a slave to sin. He is making it as clear as possible in the midst of all this preaching that, that he has obviously heard at this point. You are still the slave to sin. You are still in the bitterness of bitterness. You are not right with God. You are not a part of this kingdom. You need to repent and believe. That's what he tells him. And Simon, he seems, he seems scared, doesn't he? He seems sorrowful. And he says in verse 24, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. It might, it might be an indication that he still doesn't get it. But we don't know. Some people think this is, a, this is the beginning of repentance for him. We don't know. That's the end of his story. His story ends here. I, I like to be hopeful because God is the God of hope. And I, like, I, I just, I'm, I'm really, just kind of hope that, uh, that, he does, that he does wind up believing and he is converted and he does experience this and, and we get to hang out in heaven and, and talk about it. But we don't know because that's really not the point of the story. It's not the, Luke is making a specific point here that in the church, there are going to be real conversions, but there will also be false conversions. There will be people who know Jesus and love Jesus and then people that simply say that they do, but don't actually love him. 
In other words, we're getting reminded that the church is called to make disciples, but only God can make converts. See, conversion. Conversion is a word that's been used throughout church history, like in, in the English language anyways, uh, in a few different ways. But in general, it, is, it typically involves a few different components, right? Conversion means like the change, right? The change of a person. But it really is made up of, of the new birth that leads to faith and repentance, right? That's conversion, right? It's the, it's the spiritual transformation of a heart, right? It is the new birth that Jesus talks about in John 7, right? It is being born from above. It is God changing our souls so that we go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. And in that transformation, the effect is faith and repentance. We actually now believe in Christ, we repent of our sins. We positively trust in Christ's provision while turning away from our corruption. That's conversion. And if you are a believer in Jesus, you've experienced that and are experiencing it because your faith and your repentance continue. So you have experienced the power of God, something that only God can do. You did not do that. God did that in you. That's amazing. But a false conversion is a person who has not experienced the new birth. They have not experienced this transformation but they are still professing faith in Christ. Does it mean they're lying and they're trying to trick us? Probably not. Most of the time, no. Certainly that does happen. There are schemers and creeps that try to get into churches to cause trouble. They pretend to be Christian and they're not. But most of the time, people are just confused or they're self-deceived. And sometimes churches confuse people about how to become a Christian and make it more complicated than it is. But certainly there are people who believe themselves to be Christian or profess faith in Christ without actually experiencing any kind of real conversion or new birth. False conversion has the appearance of spiritual life, the appearance of faith without any root or reality in the individual's heart. Now, Jesus acknowledges this. Jesus actually gives us multiple parables on this reality that in, in, the, in, in the church, in our midst, we are always going to have a mixture of people who are professing faith in Christ who do believe and of people who profess faith in Christ who don't truly, genuinely believe. In fact, I'll encourage you to read chapter 13 of, uh, of Matthew's gospel. Read Matthew 13 because Jesus gives several parables on this very point. Let's just look at one. It's the parable of the sower. It's one that you guys are probably familiar with, but, in, but he gives us a few that you really should check out. But in, in Matthew 13, Jesus gets into this boat and he begins to teach in parables. And he says this in verse three, a sower went out to sow, right? Think farmer sowing seed, grow a crop. A sower went out to sow and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground and they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched and since they had no root, they withered away. Other fields fell among the thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. Then Jesus explains, like, listen, this is why I'm teaching in parables, okay? I've got a point here. And then he explains the, the, the teaching of this parable. He says this in verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, like Simon did, 
and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word, like Simon, and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word and it proves unfruitful. That is most likely where Simon was at. Jesus wants us to be familiar with this, that there are going to be real conversions where God has done something and there's going to be false conversions where something spiritual has not yet happened. And Jesus says, this is a part of our lives. Now, listen, um, what do we do with this? What do we do with this doctrine? This, let me just be really clear. You should not be true conversion hunters, right? You're, you're not like a trained sniffer dog that's going to sniff out conversions. Like that's, that's not your job. It's not your role. People will, or it, it, listen, if somebody professes faith in Christ, our response should be rejoice. Yay. Awesome. Praise God. This is great. And, and that, that should be normal. When, when my mom was converted uh, and when my dad was converted, and they, they were converted years apart from each other. But I remember people would ask, like, are you excited? Are you excited? It's pretty cool. Your mom's professing faith in Christ. Your dad, after 19 years, you're dead. Well, man, he's, 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 he's going to get baptized. Are you pumped? Well, first of all, that's a dumb question. Uh, yes, I am pumped. That's very cool. I'm very excited. Yes, but you know what? I'm more, I'll be more excited a month from now. I'll be even more excited a year from now. I'll be, I'll be so excited five years from now. Because then you see all the fruit, right? So yes, I'm pumped, I'm excited, we should be. Whenever there's a profession of faith, let's celebrate it. We, we, we're not assuming that it's all real, real. We are deducing that it's real because they are professing faith in Christ. So that's, that's reasonable. So, so let's, let's, let's agree on a, on, a, on a few things. What do we do with this doctrine that there is false conversions and, and, and true conversions in our midst? I'll give you five things that we should do. We'll be quick about this. Number one, do what you're supposed to do. <laughs> That's number one. By that, I just mean uh, preach the gospel, teach people, invest in each other, make disciples. We have control over that, right? God has given us that responsibility. He's given us the means by which to do it. So let's do that. We can't worry about what God is supposed to do. Like that's not our burden to bear. We do what we're supposed to do. That's number one. Number two, accept one's profession until it's shown to be false. Right? There's no, if, if somebody, listen, this is where church discipline comes into play. This is where we hold each other accountable. All of this is, is, is a part of the, of the Christian life. Listen, I've had friends over the years like who have professed faith in Christ and they were super hot and on fire and then just a short time later, they're gone. It happens. And we mourn that, we, we hate that. And, you know, what, what can we say other than the parable of the sower was right? So do what we're supposed to do. Preach, teach, disciple. Number two, accept one's profession until they are shown to be false. Number three, acknowledge and embrace this reality, that there will always be a mixture. In every church, there will always be a mixture of what Jesus calls the wheat and the tares, 
right? They're going to grow up together in the same communities. He's saying like some people are going to be genuine converts and other people aren't. And the disciples are like, so what do we do? Should we just try to rip out all those tares? Should I identify them and like pull them out? And Jesus is like, no, you're going to wind up grabbing the wrong. You're going to grab the wheat too. Don't do that. And it's not that we can't, I mean, certainly when people demonstrate that they are not following Jesus, then we interact with that. But it's always going to be the case. And it's important for us to acknowledge this, to recognize this, that there's some tension here. So we preach and teach, we do what we do, we accept one's profession of faith until it's shown to be false, if it's ever shown to be false. We acknowledge this reality. And number four, we let God do what we can't. And it's like, listen, God doesn't need us to let him do anything. But what I mean is, is in our own minds and hearts, like, let's allow God, let's give it to God, let's trust God to do all the things that we can't, the things that only he can do. And I'll be honest, this is what frees us up and empowers us to do the first thing, to do our part, because we don't have to worry about the most hard thing, which is changing somebody's heart and mind. It's not in you. You don't have that power. You don't have that persuasion. You don't have that wisdom. But God does. And so he does the impossible he performs the miracle what we do is we love and we preach and we teach and we lead and we serve let God handle what we cannot bringing somebody from spiritual death to spiritual life and number five this doctrine should cause you to seek and find hope I know it seems like well it just, but doesn't it mean that some people are going to fall away because they were never converted? Sure. That, but look, we find hope in this because what God actually does, he doesn't undo. When God saves somebody, he doesn't later unsave them. They can't unsave themselves. The good work that God begins, he carries it through to completion. It's not just that, that God can save, that God can convert, it's that God does convert. So what do we have the responsibility to do is just to go out and to preach, teach, proclaim. Listen, one of the, one of the worst things churches have done in, in the Convention of Southern Baptists, which we're a part of, one of the worst things that they've done is they've basically, they've gone out there and they've manipulated people into believing something and then they count them as a convert. Talking about converts, we have 15 million, roughly 15 million members in our churches. We have to be a convert to be a member in the Southern Baptist Convention. 15 million. You know how many show up at church on Sunday? Five million. A third. Some ain't working. Some ain't right. And a lot of that, a lot of that, not all, but a lot of that has to do with false conversions. Here's what I mean. Evangelists love to do things like, hey, listen, you know, uh, they'll tell their testimony. And the testimony is oftentimes, hey, listen, I was, uh, I was, I was, I was a drunk. I was, uh, I was reckless. Uh, I was unfaithful. And then I found Jesus. And now I'm no longer uh, drunk. And I am now faithful to my, my spouse. And my life has come together. I just got a promotion. I'm making more money than ever. My marriage is tops. It's great. It's wonderful. Life is good. If you believe in Jesus, you're going to have a sweet ride just like me. Uh, which is definitely not true. In fact, some of you, when you trust Christ, your marriage gets into trouble, right? So, th there's no promise of a better life in this world because you're following Jesus. But we've sold that lie to a lot of people. So a lot of people sign up. They're like, okay, I'll choose to believe in Jesus when they never really aren't believing in Jesus for the right things. It's not to rescue them from sin, death, and hell. It's to get them out of their worldly hell and into a worldly heaven, 
This gives us hope because we see all we have to do is present the gospel, the facts, the truth, right? Make an earnest appeal, repent of your sins and look to Jesus because in him we have what? God ransoming, saving the unworthy. To the death of Christ, our sins are atoned for. We encourage people to look to him to find eternal life, abundant life, reconciliation to their maker, their purpose, their identity. All these things are given to us in Christ. We tell them to flee from God's justice and draw near to God's mercy. And then God can change the heart. We can't change people. God can and he does. And the early church got this. They understood. That's why they kept doing their thing. See that last verse, verse 25 in chapter 8? And when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. It, they, they weren't discouraged from doing the thing after Simon proved to be a false convert. They didn't be like, it doesn't even work. Sometimes it doesn't even work. They, they, didn't, they, they weren't depressed. They were... They were thrilled that God saves sinners. I'm sure that they were sad about what went down with Simon. Who wouldn't be? But God saves sinners. He actually does the impossible and he allows us to be a part of it. So let's be a part of it. Let's actually share the gospel with hope and boldness. Let's not write people off because they're too whatever, too far gone, too different, too Samaritan, whatever. We don't do that. We're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to go, the gospel's for everybody and God can save anybody. So let's go. And maybe that's you. Maybe, maybe you feel like, you know, yeah, I know God can save anybody, but he's not going to save me because I'm too whatever. You know, and maybe it's not that you look like a total creep or a, a weirdo. Maybe you do. I don't know. I haven't been paying too much attention. But maybe it's not that you look that way, but maybe like you, you know on the inside, like, no, I am a creep. I am corrupt on the inside. And I, I'm, you know, everybody thinks I'm this, person. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're not so much a false convert because you're professing faith in Christ as much as everybody around you just assumes that you're a Christian and you know in your heart that you are not yet a believer. A lot of people thought my dad was a Christian for years before his faith because he kept coming to church every week and he's a good guy. Who doesn't like my dad? Me sometimes, but he's because he's my dad. Now, like, everybody's kind of assumed he was a believer. Maybe you're there. Maybe you're thinking, like, that's, like, I, maybe you're recognizing I am not, I have not trusted in Christ. And everybody around me just thinks I am a follower. My question would be, do you want Christ? Do you, do you want him to take away your sin? Do you, do you want him to receive you? Do you want him to cleanse you? to sanctify you, do you want the grace that he offers? Because if you want it, you can have it. Jesus says, if you ask, you'll receive. If you seek, you'll find. So believe. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop listening to the things in your head, the lies in the world. Look to Jesus. Trust him in you. You will be saved. Not like Simon but like the other Samaritans whose lives were forever changed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, teach us beyond what we can cover here on a Sunday morning. Encourage us. Encourage us with the gospel, Lord, so that we're not just preachers of the gospel, but we are, 
We're like gospel aficionados, Lord. We want to be people who savor the gospel for ourselves as well, who love it and rejoice in it. We, Lord, help us to be people who rejoice in Jesus for what has been done for us and not just for what Jesus can do for others. We pray, Lord, that out of the abundance of joy of salvation that we would be compelled to tell others that others would see that in us and give attention to our words that they might believe. In Jesus' name, amen.